Hello everybody, before the show kicks off, I just want to announce that I'm doing a contest giveaway for two free tickets to the Midwest Monster Fest pop-up horror market that will take place May 22nd from noon to 7 p.m. at the Rock Island County Fairgrounds in East Moline, Illinois. It's going to be a not-to-miss outdoor event, including guest celebrities Walter Phelan, who played Dr. Satan in House of a Thousand Corpses, and uh, Robert Mukes, who plays RJ in House of a Thousand Corpses, and he's also been in Bone Tomahawk, which is an awesome uh, Western horror film that uh, you all should check out if you haven't checked that one out. But uh, this is a big episode today, guys. And uh, so all you have to do to enter the contest is to either email rudehorror at gmail.com or just send me a message on social media letting me know what your favorite horror film is or, you know, a favorite of yours. And, uh, and give me a name that you want me to announce on the giveaway because uh, towards the end of April... Uh, I will be announcing the giveaway on the show, so, uh, you know, enter now because time is running out. Uh, you know, who doesn't want free tickets to a uh, horror event? So, uh, if you're in the Quad Cities area, Iowa, Illinois, or if you're traveling around that time to this area, uh, this is a, a great chance to win free tickets and and have a good old time. There's going to be vendors activities uh there's gonna be a lot more stuff involved with that so i mean it's just gonna be like a little fair horror convention type thing it's gonna be really cool so more info on that check out www.mwmonsterfest.com for uh for you know if you just want to jump ahead and buy tickets yourself you can buy tickets on their website and uh, you know, follow them on social media because uh, more announcements are getting made all the time. And uh, yeah, it should be a fun time. So without further ado, this is going to be a huge episode with uh, Roger Ward, who played uh, Fifi in Mad Max. He's also been in Turkey Shoot, Stone, Lady Stay Dead, um, countless movies. The list could just, you know... The list is just huge as far as the the movies that he's been in. And he's also an author. He wrote a book called The Set, which also turned into a motion picture. So he's such a cool guy to talk to. Uh, I'm honored to to get him on the show. And as well as uh, Ron Brown, who uh, is the CEO of a streaming service called Ozflix. And uh, he's here to talk about Ozflix. And also, I learned some things about Ron that I wasn't even aware of. So uh, stay tuned for that. There's some great, great stuff in here, guys. Uh, and you know, and then I have to mention uh, David Black is on here to, to join in on the Ozploitation conversation. And this was just an all-around fun discussion. Uh, I maybe asked a few questions, but I mean, these guys sort of took the reins and ran with it, which is fine because I myself wanted to learn more about Ozploitation films, and uh, these guys are very knowledgeable when it comes to Ozploitation. So without further ado, I'm going to let Pitlord kick off the show, and then we're going to get right into the interview. Enjoy.
You're on the top shelf. And I'm not going to lose you because of some crazy notion about quitting. They say people don't believe in heroes anymore. Well, damn them. You and me, Max. We're going to give them back the heroes. You're listening and watching the Rude Horror Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Rude. And today I have a big episode with several guests, uh, including Roger Ward, who has been in uh, tons of movies, including Mad Max, uh, Turkey Shoot, uh, Fatal Bond with uh, uh, Linda Blair. Mm. And I mean, just I, I could just go on and on. And uh, then I also have Ron Brown here, who is the CEO of Ozflix. And he'll be here to talk about his streaming service, Ozflix. And as well as returning guest, David Black, who is no stranger to this mm. podcast. Uh, he's been on here before to talk about toxic alien zombie babes from outer space. Uh, he's here again to uh, give us some updates and, uh, and talk about Ozploitation and horror in general, and uh, any upcoming uh, stuff that he's working on as well. So, first off, I just want to say uh, thank you guys so much for coming to the show. And how is everyone doing today? Good, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, lovely. Lovely to be here. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Um, so, uh, Ozploitation is uh, a genre of film that uh you know like i personally haven't watched like a ton of ozploitation films but i have seen uh, a handful and especially some of the horror ones and uh you know i i live here in america so uh i i get exposed to all kinds of horror movies and uh looking at the list of ozploitation films i'm like man there's a lot i haven't seen and uh, so I reached out to David wanting to, uh, you know, have him on the show to talk about exploitation films. And, uh, uh, you know, this branched out to a, a bigger conversation to, uh, you know, have Roger and Ron on here, which is incredible. So uh, for people that <laughs> haven't gotten into exploitation, where do you think would be a good place to start? And... Uh, and, you know, what does the exploitation films mean to you guys? Would a good place be The Man from Hong Kong that had Roger in it? Yeah, I thought about that, yeah. That was 74, yeah. I think. 70, 74, I think we made that, or it was released in 74. Welcome to Australia, Mr. Chan. I'm Taylor, Federal Narcotics Bureau. And you're wanted in Hong Kong for robbery, drug peddling and murder. Oh, yeah, we've been expecting you. So do yourself a favor and answer a few questions. Who sent you? Who do you work for? You're not used to them now? Yeah, and I love you too. Now, what are their names? There's also... Before, before that was Stone, that was 72. 
Stone, the bikey movie. Oh, yeah. So that was probably the beginning. And then okay. they went yeah. from there. Mm. You were on Stone, weren't you, Roger? Yeah, yeah, I was in Stone, yeah. It played the bike, one of the bikers, yeah. The colours that they uh, made for Stone ended up being on the back of the Vietnam Veterans Motorcycle Club. That's right. Yeah, it was for them. Uh, I think uh, Sandy Harbour always had those people in mind and, and kept them in the loop all the way through, and now they own the rights to it, you know. They own the rights to the, uh, to the, to the colours now, the, the veterans do. One of the great films, obviously, that sums up a lot of the Ausploitation genre is the documentary made by Mark Hartley, which is called oh. Not Quite Hollywood. Yeah. That's a good place if people just want to get almost like a sampler of like That's what right. is Ausploitation and, and uh, all the different films that came out in the genre rather than starting with individual films, which is fine if people want to do that. But there is the op opportunity, I guess, to sort of get an overview of the genre by looking at the not quite Hollywood, um, not quite Hollywood, you know, um, documentary. If people can yeah. find that, if they can find that online, that's a good that's a good solution. Yeah, that's and, got uh, Tarantino in it, hasn't it? Well, it has because for the very reason that when Mark Hartley was researching that documentary. Um, he discovered that Tarantino was a massive Ausploitation fan and he thought, well, Tarantino's got a bit of a profile. If I can get him in the documentary, that'll maybe make the documentary more marketable. So um, he went out and, uh, you know, worked hard to get Tarantino involved, but he was very happy to be involved because he loves the genre, he loves the films, and he says that Ausploitation uh, was basically kind of why he got into filmmaking. And, um, you know, he, I guess, essentially... Uh, just talks about all his favourite exploitation films in that documentary, but also he's kept talking about them in lots of other places. Anytime the subject comes up, he'll talk about it, and uh, he really knows he really knows the genre and he really knows the films very very well. I discovered a lot of the films from researching them and finding them after he spoke about them. I thought I knew a lot because I grew up with it here, but boy. Tarantino's knowledge on exploitation is unbeatable. Yeah. yeah. He knows more than we do, yeah. 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 He's, he's got a great knowledge. Roger, what, what are some of the other exploitation um, films from the early, from the early period um, were you involved with? What, that, that's something that I'd be fascinated to hear more about, you know, your background in that. I mean, we, we know, obviously, of the really high-profile stuff like Mad Max, but there was probably lots of other pictures that you were involved mm. in that maybe not, not as well-known to people. That's right, yeah. Um, the major ones, well, there was one called Lady Stay Dead, which was a horror film, done by Terry Burke, you may remember. Terry Burke was a bit yeah. of a, uh, you know, <laughs> he, he's an independent. <laughs> yeah, he made Lady Stay Dead. That was a horror film. Um, Turkey Shoot was another one. That was, oh, yeah. That was done in the 80, 82. And uh, Lady Stay Dead was about the same time, actually. Uh, before that, there was um, The Irishman, which was just a family film. It was nothing to do with horror, but it was a, a, a film that, came into the era, but it was just uh, an early Australian film, The Irishman. And uh, But otherwise, I did a lot of films. I just can't remember a lot of the names. But there were so many in those days because there was the tax incentive. You remember that one? The 10BA. 10B. 
the fact they could even they were making they were making films right, left and centre. So we just went from one film to the other. And unfortunately at that time we actors were concerned about not the film we were working on, but the one we were going through. So, you know, we just sort of wanted to get this one out of the way so we get on with the next one. And I wish now, looking back, that I'd spent more time enjoying what I was doing, you know, now that these films or a lot of them have become cult figures. Yeah. I wish that I, you know, spent more time remembering what happened and like people 45 years later start talking about various aspects of those films and I can't remember a damn thing about it. And they know more about that film because they research it and they watch it. And I just wish that I'd enjoyed it more instead of worrying about my next film and the one after that, you know. Well, that well, the the interesting thing is that people probably maybe who are listening to the podcast don't know about the uh, the tax incentive. I should um, we, I should probably talk about that for a minute yeah. just so that people understand. So we uh, we got a situation here where we'd had um, conservative governments for a very long time, and then all of a sudden, um, primarily thanks to um, a really, I think the baby boomer generation um, coming, becoming sort of aware about the problems of the Vietnam War and, and, and other issues, there was a big swing across to, um, to a, a kind of a nearly, I wouldn't say completely socialist sort of government, but a, a very, very liberal government. And um, the uh, government kind of moved to start trying to build up the Australian film industry by making a lot of... Uh, very generous tax concessions to people who invested in films and um right through the the mid mid 70s in particular you know 71 72 73 74 75 which is what roger was mentioning earlier before when he was talking about um the films that he was involved like stone the early the early exploitation films and man from hong kong was stone was 74 man from hong kong was 75 um Mad Dog Morgan even, I guess, yeah. Death yeah. Cheaters. I mean, you know, those films all kind of came out of um, that period when there was money sloshing around because it, it was a 150% tax deduction. If you invested a dollar in a film, you got to deduct $1.50 from your taxes, which meant, you know, people could kind of leverage, especially, you know, doctors and and, and lawyers and uh, dentists and, you know, people with high incomes could all of a sudden really lower their tax bracket by, you know, throwing a, a, some money at a movie. And the movies didn't really matter. Nobody really cared no. what the movie was no. <laughs> as, as, long, as long as they could get the tax deduction. So people went out and made all kinds of movies. You know, it was like... Uh, it was it was like free money and you know people just went wow great let's go so people came out of the woodwork people who had been working in television working on you know um tv shows uh, people who'd been working on other very i would say very sort of normal uh kind of movies uh just people who had always dreamed of making a movie could suddenly get their hands on some money and go make a movie so we just made dozens and dozens and dozens of really crazy movies and people were inspired too i think they were inspired by um the stuff that was happening some of the early the easy rider things and some of the things that were happening in hollywood there was all of a sudden money and there was inspiration and um australia went crazy we, we went out and made you know it wasn't big budget stuff it was really tiny budget stuff but it, there was enough money and people just went went nuts so that's 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 the background of, of how a lot of this stuff got made 
Would the adventures of Barry McKenzie fall into that era or just before? It was like 1969 that it came out. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. So, no, I, so I think he may have he did it himself. I think I know a lot about I know a lot about that movie because my father distributed that movie. He was the distributor. So, oh, really, he oh. was he he was the head of Universal Studios in Australia at that stage, oh. and um, Philip Adams, who produced that movie, uh, tried every every you know all the distributors and basically uh, everybody knocked him back. You know, he went to all the the big. Uh, distribution companies and then he knocked on my father's door and my oh. father was trying to uh, do something a bit different and because he was a really kind of Australian uh, centric um, sort of distributor he sort of said yes let's let's I think it's funny and let's put it on and what distributors have to do is they have to convince uh, the cinema owners to play the film but in my dad's case he had just recently bought uh, some cinemas and he bought those cinemas because um, he was having difficulty with greater union in getting um, the sort of deals and terms that he wanted so he bought a cinema in Sydney called the Ascot and a cinema in Melbourne called the Bryson and he um, he had cinemas and he needed films so he thought well this is a great opportunity so he actually put um, he put the adventures of Barry McKenzie on um, in his own cinemas where he didn't have to get the approval of Greater Union or Hoyts to do it. He just did it because he, he had the, the cinemas at his disposal. He was making the decisions both distribution and exhibition, which was mm -hmm. unusual. And the film was massive. It was huge. It was unprecedented. Nobody nobody predicted it at all. And um, it became oh. massive. And it, it established, um, you know, Philip Adams' career and he went on to do a whole bunch of stuff, as, it, as, as everybody in Australia will remember. But... Yeah. Um, yeah, Barry McKenzie was, I guess you could say it was exploitation in the comedy sense, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it established Dame Edna Everidge, although <laughs> Edna Everidge doesn't become a dame until Barry McKenzie holds his own. When Gough yeah. Whitlam, the Prime yeah. Minister of Australia, is in the film and says, yeah. arise, Dame Edna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, again, you know, Whitlam, that was in that 70. 374 75 yeah. period i yeah. think um that was that little window we had that little window where we had um where, where we had um a very a very liberal government and you know tax money sloshing around and you know people just got a shot got a shot that they wouldn't have had yeah yeah well it's certainly a wild west um era for aussie uh, uh producers and directors a lot of too <laughs> scared to do anything nowadays. So, but the um, the wildness of it, in fact, the wildness yeah. of the whole era. Because I used to go see indie films, believe it or not, at country fairs. I don't know if you ever went to those. There's a whole lot of country fairs, and they all lead up to the Royal Melbourne Show. Or if you're in Adelaide, it's the Easter Show. Yeah. And they always had a tent there, and the first things that they put on at the tent were your .05 movies by the police, which are totally unrated and were just absolute gore, seeing how badly people were smashed up. And the second mm. one was your VD movies, which were also unrated, and you saw genitalia, but you'd never want to have sex again after seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> then there's a little break, and all of the uh, guys that thought they were so tough going into the tent, the young guys of 18 and 19, would yeah. go out with their beers and spew their guts up. 
And then they'd come back in for the Aussie film. So they were ready for anything that was um, Super 8 or 16 millimeter that got put up there. And I think the challenge back then was who can break taboos? Who can bend boundaries? And I think 10B must have just given a bunch of those guys the license because Turkey shoot. Wow. That, the idea of hunting people, I don't think that was in any movie before. No. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, Anthony Ganane needs a mention here, uh, Tony Ganane, the producer, because Tony was a lawyer, um, wanted to make pictures and just had the ability to convince, um, because he was well-spoken and he was a lawyer and seemed trustworthy, um, he just had an ability to convince people to invest. And he, he was extremely effective. He raised a lot of money and made a lot of pictures. Not yeah. not um, not a lot of them were necessarily, um, you know, that well-written or that well, um, you know, uh, um, the special effects were very kind, <laughs> very kind of amateurish looking back on them. But... He was just going for it. And, you know, when you look at the history of, you know, of Australian exploitation in the 70s and um, you'll see Tony Ganane's name will pop up on probably, you know, anything from 30 to 50 percent of those pictures. Roger, you you know Tony well, I'm sure. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've worked with him quite a few times, yeah. Nice guy. <laughs> a lot of people never liked Tony. I thought he was an arrogant and uh, uh, yeah. a prick. But I, I like the guy, and he, he never let me down. And you'll hear stories about never paid and so on, but he always paid me on the spot and, uh, and never ever any problem with him at all. No, nice guy. Yeah, I think he, I think he, um, I think he paid most people, but uh, except at the end, I think he took on a big project and I think he lost a lot of money on it and then he couldn't pay people and he, he, mm -hmm. um, he got that reputation uh, with some people because of that big pi picture he did that he that he kind of went bust on, but um, you know that happens in Hollywood. That's not limited to uh, no. Well, he he, he he paid me even a thousand dollars to shave my head for turkey shoot because I arrived <laughs> on set with hair, and he said I want you with a bald head, and uh, I wasn't prepared for that. But my agent said, well, yeah, you can have him bald, but it'll cost you a thousand dollars. <laughs> and he said, I should remember when Roger Wood worked for a thousand dollars. Now we should have a haircut. But yeah, no, as I say, nice guy. I like him. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, a lot of the pictures really came out of out of his out of his uh, stable, and uh, and then every you know everybody else. I mean, the probably Mad Max is the one that for me was the point at which I entered the industry you know seriously because i've been working in television and then all of it, i've been working at crawford productions on tv uh dramas cop shows and things like that and then all of a sudden i got a phone call from tony patterson who was editing mad max i think he was the second or the third editor on the picture because uh george kept going through editors and i got a phone call from um tony saying uh, we need you to come and I need you to come and uh, what are you doing for the next six weeks? And I said, yeah. oh, God, I, I, nothing much, really. I've got a few bookings here and there. And he said, I need you to come in. We've got to finish. I've got a mix booked and we've got to lay all the soundtracks and do all this stuff. And um, he said, I was doing going to do it all myself because the budget, they've run out of money. But but basically, um, I'm still arguing with George over a whole bunch of stuff. So you're going to have to come in and, and um, do the sound editing. So I, I just sort of went down there on monday morning we, we edited mad max in a um in a little room in one room 
um, yeah. above a above an Indian restaurant and next door to a um, <laughs> to a massage parlor. To, it was next door to a to a sex shop, and uh, that's all they could afford. There was this little room, and just all day long was just all this curry smell coming up from the from downstairs, and 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 I was in a room that was divided. It was just one room, like in a what would have been an old house. I get a two-story house, like a like a like a store downstairs and a and a and a residence above, and I had to uh, I had to uh, edit the I had to lay the soundtrack on the other side of a piece of a sheet of plywood. They divided the room in two with a sheet of plywood, and of course there was absolutely no acoustic um, isolation whatsoever. So I was editing the picture on on one you know the sound on one side and they were still editing the picture the pictures on the other side of the wall but <laughs> arguing and talking and playing sound backwards and forwards on the they had a they had a great great big italian um machine called a prevost which was um the budget was so low that they they shot the film in 35 and then they made the work print to edit on out of um black and white 16 millimeter and um they couldn't really see what the color was going to be until it, the whole picture went to the lab and came back later. But they were editing a black and white version, and um, and they were arguing a lot about it because George had seen the color, and Tony had only seen the black and white. And so he was like, "No, you got to use that shot because the colors, you know." And it was all this kind of stuff going on. Yeah, and I'm yeah. trying to edit the soundtrack on the other side of a sheet of plywood. Seriously, the thinnest sheet of plywood you've ever. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> And, yeah. and and I'm uh, trying to do all this on a little gang synchronizer. I mean, I didn't have any, it was, you'd have to remember film, you'd have to know film technology to understand what I'm talking about. But this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. I remember one night, Tony and I, after George had gone, Tony and I were um, having a beer before we kind of locked the building and went home, you know, one midnight or whatever. And, George, and uh, Tony turns to me and says, well, you'll be editing the next one. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, I don't think George will ever hire me again. And he was right. George never hired him again. <laughs> he, on, on, on Mad Max 2, um, it was a completely different crew and a yeah. completely different, um, you know, both shoot and post-production because um, George didn't know much about directing. Believe it or not, you know, when he made Mad Max, he right. he didn't he didn't understand. He, he'd made, um, he'd made no feature-length drama and he hadn't even directed television previously so he was um kind of making it up all the time and and david um egby the, the the cameraman told me after you know he would keep asking for shots that were essentially crossing the line and david would oh, say the well, line yeah yeah and david would say no no you can't do that you're crossing the line george would go no and he'd insist and he'd do it and then of course that you know tony would the footage would get to the editing room and tony would be trying to cut together stuff that just didn't cut together. Two people would be having a conversation and looking in the same direction, not at each other and all sorts yeah, of stuff. So yeah, yeah. It, it was it was a nightmare to cut. And um, uh, but George learned a lot. He was a very very fast. I mean, I to his credit, he learned so much from all of that that by the time he made uh, Mad Max Two, you know, he 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 nailed it. He he, he really. He really knew how to. He always understood what the actors should be doing and how the script was working. That was never an issue. But I mean, directing for camera, I guess. But but by Mad Max two, he had that down too. And um, you know that that picture 
come together came together very very well. I I, I, I wasn't I wasn't there either. <laughs> Tony's <laughs> prediction Tony's prediction I'd be cutting the next one wasn't right. But um, anyhow, we got we got the picture done, and it obviously was a, a kind of a big surprise to everybody. I think when we made the when we were editing that film, and and Roger, you were on the shoot, so you'll you'll know exactly what this the mood and spirit was there. But when we were cutting it, we thought we were cutting a little backyard, um, you know, little backyard picture. Exactly. This was, we did not know we were making the Mad Max that everybody thinks of now, which is this huge iconic international hit that's massive in, was massive in America, massive in Japan, massive in other territories. And we, we thought we were, this is a picture that cost, you know, 300,000. It's kind of one of those easy rider type stories where they didn't kind of know what they had and then they put it out and all of a sudden it was huge. So yeah. it was it was exactly the same kind of deal as that. And, Rog, you, you probably had the same experience on, this, on yeah. the set, I guess. Oh, I did, actually, yeah. I uh, When George came to ask me to do the film, um, I asked for a certain figure of money and George said, oh, I, I can't afford that. I don't have much money. And I said, well, look, I'm sorry. I'd love to do the film. I just can't work for any less than that figure. And George spent about 15 minutes working things out, and he finally said, okay, I can pay you. I can pay you what you want. I said, oh, great. How many weeks? He said, I'll cram all of your work into one week. I said, oh, my God. So he paid me what I wanted weekly, but he crammed it into the one week. But at the end <laughs> of that week, I felt like you're saying now, I felt that that film may go somewhere. I had a feeling about it, and I'm sure George did too. We looked at each other across the room. It was my last shot, and George said, well, Fifi, he still calls me Fifi even today. He said, well, <laughs> Fifi, this is your last shot. And I said, yeah, George. And I was about to say, look, I'll stick around. I'll, I'll do more. I said there was more I could have done. Uh, I'll stick around for points. And then I said, no, 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 you've set your criteria. You know, you've set your limit. You, you know, walk away, which I did. <laughs> and now I wish the hell I'd said, look, George, I'll stick around for points, but no. But no, I had no idea it was going to go that far, and um, George didn't either. But um, he certainly learned, as you say, he learned a lesson, and uh, uh, he's a great guy. And none of crew member in these days will tell him, George, you can't do that. No one will tell him that anymore. <laughs> he, won't get, he won't get Lindsay Foote or, uh, or David Egby hassling him, no. No, no, no. no. Yeah, well, uh, that was Ron, that. Was that, that um, was the, yep. Oh, Ron, you mentioned a lot of the films had uh, not high-quality SFX, but I was thinking of one, um, and you'll know more about it than me, Brain Dead, that zombie film. Right, yeah. yeah. That was uh, the New Zealand one, wasn't it? Uh, that was uh, Jackson's film, wasn't it? It was. I, Did Peter, they Peter film Jackson. it in Australia? Yeah, I, I didn't. I wasn't in that, I don't think. But Peter, yeah. that was Peter Jackson film, yeah. Brain Dead, yeah. I actually, I don't know what the effects uh, story behind that film is. I'm actually just having a quick look here to see. Um, well, I've watched it a few times, but um, did I uh, get it wrong? Is that uh, a New Zealand film and not uh, wasn't filmed here? It is. It's a New Zealand film. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. So, so not under 10B, not exploitation. Peter, Peter started off very much like you, David, uh, doing <laughs> very outrageous comedic short films and so on, similar to what you do. And uh, he was always you know, unrecognised as a filmmaker, but now he certainly hit the big time. But it took him a while. It took him, you know, a few films before he got there. 
But I think that was one of those early films that he did. But it is. Dave, you do a lot of outrageous films yourself, don't you? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd love to be able to do the effects that he did in Brain Dead. And what, that's like 1982. Uh, I look at that and yeah. I say, we've got green screen. We've got a lot of things now. Yeah. People have learned more because I can go on YouTube and just get tutorials. And there's more um, SFX schools and makeup schools. But yeah. I don't. But I, I don't know if um, at this point that I could even come close to what he's done. The man's genius. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it was actually a budget of $3 million, though, and um, I'm just what actually, I've just, I've just Googled it, and it's $3 million, and it was, and it was actually made in 92, or it was released in 92, so he probably had, that's a fair while from, you know, after 72, 73, 74, when, when we were working, that's 20 years, and I think things had progressed, and certainly a budget of $3 yeah. million, you, you, you can do yeah. better effects. You can get better effects with it, but um, yeah. yeah, it was it was uh, Peter Jackson, and it was definitely made in New Zealand. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, Dead End Driving, I think, was a budget of one million. Ah, oh, Dead End Driving's Australian, yeah, yeah. But then again, I'm talking about another genius, uh, Brian Trenchard Smith. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no use comparing me to these guys. <laughs> I can dream. <laughs> Dead End Driving. I'm just actually having a look at that one too. That's actually, um, you know, that had a budget of that had a budget of uh, 2.5 million dollars apparently yeah. uh, in '86. And uh, what's interesting there is that um, <laughs> the Australian box office was only 68 thousand yeah, dollars. Ridiculous, isn't it? Mm. That that that's what that's what was um, earned back. So you can see some of the some of the films. I mean, Peter Weir's. When I think of, you know, the early period, I guess I think of things like, um, uh, you know, Peter Weir's film and Cars at Eight Paris. And, you know, that, that, those kinds of films are, are sort of the real low-budget ones, you know, that, that where basically everybody was um, almost working, almost, you know, almost barely paid, you know what I mean? Yeah. Stuff that yeah. people did really early in their careers and, you know, when that when I think of those films, they're they're the ones. There, there were um, some that broke through and did very well. And Peter Weir obviously went on to have a good, a very successful career because after you know Picnic at Hanging Rock and you know and then off to off to Hollywood and, and all the things that he did. But um, almost all the filmmakers, when you think about it, that ended up in Hollywood, and that includes, as you say, guys like Trenchard Smith and and um, and George and and Weir and some of the others, they all started with those exploitation films around that same period, around the seventies, really. Yeah, they did. They, they, they all they all made a picture for next to nothing, and then, I mean, you know, I guess when you look at the careers of some of our actors, that that's a similar story. You know, if it hadn't been for something like Romper Stomper, I guess. You know, Russell wouldn't have had a career overseas oh, yeah. if it hadn't been if it hadn't been for Chopper. Eric Banner wouldn't have made it. You know, exactly. Overseas. Yeah. So I, I, I guess those exploitation type films have spawned a lot of careers, directors and yeah. actors. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's actually an important point to make because you wouldn't believe how many actors say to me, "Oh, gee, I would never be on one of your films; it would destroy my career." Well, I think you need to actually get the experience and be on the sets and learn and make <laughs> mistakes and That's actually right. have a product out there. The only people's oh. careers that can be destroyed are A-listers 
who actually have a dollar value to their name when the finance people come along. So they have maybe five hits in a row and they are um, got a dollar value of a certain amount, have one flop, the dollar value goes down. So the cons- their, their careers aren't actually destroyed, but they are the share market. That's not really acting. That, that, you're right. They're concerned about that. But all the actors, as I just said, you know, the Eric Banners and the Russell Crowe's and, and uh, Mel Gibson's and, and whatever, you know, those guys, um, they establish themselves on those exploitation pictures. That that's that is where they demonstrated their 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 natural charisma, their ability. And all and and every one of them when you think and there's probably other examples, they're, they're three that just spring to mind that that I know personally and know their stories, but you know those films um Chopper Romper Stomper, um Mad Max, you know, those kind of films, they actually um when the films were being made, everybody regarded them as being um, you know, well, it's a couple of weeks' work, and you know, yeah. and uh, you know, and it's an opportunity to, you know, it's opportunity to get in front of the camera and do something, uh, yeah. you know, in a long form rather than just a short film or a TV show. Which that was the mentality in those days. Short films come on since then. Short films are an art form in itself now, but at yeah. the time yeah. it was kind of um, just something you did to kind of, you know, get some experience. But yeah, they they all they all got to start with exploitation films, really. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, even um, a short um, short film as an exploitation film could become part of an anthology. And a good example um, is, say, The Groove Tube, 1972. It's not an Aussie film, but they put out an anthology and it became an annual thing until everybody started copying it. And you, But, uh, yeah, the anthology of, um, of exploitation short films uh, can make up, you can get um, a feature film out of that that can also be quite successful. Mm. Right. One of, one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was putting together the um, the Ausflix, um horror film or exploitation type, you know, like I, we just call it scary stuff because it's a, a collection of, of all sorts of stuff. It's some horror stuff, it's some thrillers, it's some, um, you know, um, every different genre and subgenre you could imagine in, in all of that area. And it includes obviously the Wolf Creeks and it includes, as I said, Romper Stomper and, um, and lots of other stuff that, that people have made over the years. But I was a, a, astounded really, I think at the end of the day by um, how good uh, people could make these films today with the technology we now have for still for tiny money. You know, back then we kind of didn't make them necessarily that well. But now we can actually make them really, really well um, for tiny money. And there's people making films, you know, um, guys like, I guess, Chris Sun, um, trying to think of some of the others that, I mean, and even Daniel Armstrong probably and, 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 um, and many others have made some great films for almost, you know, like for ridiculous amounts of money. I, I think Daniel Armstrong's budgets are around 10 grand. He makes That's it. about it. So makes Stuart Simpson and oh, Stuart, those yes, two. Yes, yeah, Stuart, of course, absolutely. Well, there's that's you El know, Monstro and yeah. um, chocolate strawberry vanilla. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he's done a, he's done he's done a bunch. Chocolate strawberry vanilla is a good film. But Chris Sun, you know, he works on slightly higher budgets, obviously, but he's but he's got um, a similar thing. Um, Travis Bain, you know, Travis up in yeah. in in North Queensland, far North Queensland. Travis is working on 
the smell of an oily rag and, and turning out good stuff. A lot of it is based, I think, on coming up with a good script, you know, um, which doesn't necessarily cost you money if, you're, if you've got the imagination and you can write it. Yeah. I think that's the... I think that's a, a thing that makes some of these films um, very compelling. Yeah. Well, got... It doesn't cost much to make, um, well, to film nowadays. I remember I wanted to get into film back in, um, I think it was 1989, 1990. I was the editorial cartoonist of The Truth, which was mm. a national paper. Yeah, so people were telling me, oh, Dave, you're a star. So um, we started talking <laughs> about doing something for the TV. And what I was to do then is actually common now. The idea was um, I sit there and I draw my cartoon and speak to the camera and we do it as a weekly thing. I think it was going to be Channel 7. And um, nowadays they do it all of the time. They, they speed up what you're drawing so it looks like you're drawing fast. Back then yep. you drew the cartoon six times but you had it at a different um, amount that was drawn and you kept swapping over and putting one piece under the other under the other. And yeah. I remember the, the first thing um, they said to me, right, now it's going to cost you on the, um, I think it was a beta tape, $150 per tape. And we've got to send the um, this demo out to 50 places. I go, what the hell? I'm going to get paid $450 a week. Yeah. The, actual, the, the filming itself was done for free um, by, by a group, um, and they're all trusted friends. But when we started crunching the money, um, couldn't even afford to market it. And no. then there was colour color corrections that needed to be done. They'd done it a press button nowadays. I remember everything was looking green. And they said, oh, no, we've got to get that back into the editing suite. It was done on a particular machine. Now we have to mention, match that exact machine because whoever did that actually pressed a particular button in. You can only put it back in the same machine and God. unpress that button. It won't go in another machine. Nowadays, we've got <laughs> formats that will go across this, that, and the other. This whole project in 89 just sounded very expensive and like one great big bloody nightmare. So I didn't end up doing any uh, film work until um, uh, 10, 15 years later. Good. And even then, it was done with students because... They could mm. um, borrow the equipment from oh, yeah. um, the university. So um, I think it's now 15 years since I did my first music video. So that oh. was all done. That was done with students where um, if you wanted to do your own film, you could use a mini DV camera. But uh, nowadays people pick up the iPhone and you've got, I think the latest one's 4K, but for 10 years, HD on the iPhone. Yep. yep. So. So making a film is really cheap nowadays compared to just the tin tax cost of what I think the tape that went into the cameras back then was 150 um, for one one reel. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're about that thick in the reel. And they used to tell you what the thickness was. Um, but, uh, yeah, to you $150 back then. That's like three times the weekly amount for the dollar. <laughs> Remember, eighty-two. It was um, sixty bucks a week if you're on the dollar. So if if you're an unemployed artist and somebody said, "Well, the first um, reel is actually going to cost you one hundred and eighty bucks," it's like, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to uh, point out, uh, you know, you, you were talking about uh, movies can be made on an iPhone. 
there's actually uh, a really good, uh, I guess you could call it like a psychological horror movie, and it's called Unsane. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that one. No. Um, I have, uh, but I can't remember if I watched it. Nowadays, we've got so much product coming out because right. it's become easier to produce that it's near impossible to keep up with all of the product that comes out, which brings in another problem. How do you promote it now? The social media has all been nerfed. What, what the promises were uh, 10 years ago, well, people were benefiting from it then. We've got yeah. a lot of filmmakers. It's very hard for them to promote. They, bring out, they do bring out a film, but trying to cut through the chatter to get it seen, it's another mm. thing. Absolutely, I think that's one of the biggest. I think that's one of the biggest issues, and it's and it's for a lot of independent filmmakers, it's really, really, really hard now. I mean, we on Ausflix, we try to have a pretty open door policy about letting um, independent films onto the channel because it's very inexpensive to store and stream films, whereas you know a cinema release or a, a larger sort of distribution kind of plan. Um, yeah, it's going to involve hundreds of thousands of dollars, which indie filmmakers can never get their hands on. It's usually more than the film costs to make. But we can stream stuff if people can just hear about it, you know, or if they come to the channel to watch, if they come to the channel to watch Mad Max, we can be like, hey, you guys ought to watch something in the Pilliger or Tarnation while you're at it because that's, that's a fun movie too. You've never heard of it. You've never heard of anybody in it, but mm. it's probably worth the same $3 to watch that you'd spend on something else if you wanted to have a have a shot you know have a have a try that's our philosophy that's what we try to encourage people to do well that's the beauty of oz flicks um in in the past when we had video shops um that's where i could uh, catch up on um old uh ozploitation movies there yeah there'd be a little part of an aisle now well we don't have video shops anymore so you can go to oz flicks and say oh my god this is the biggest online collection of exploitation in the world. Am I am I wrong in that? No, I think that's pretty right. I I don't know where everything else is. Um, I I try to keep an eye on things like, you know, our local competitors, like our local Netflix version and our local Stan and things like that. But um, yeah, I don't think they're really anywhere else. And and interestingly. Um, some of the films are kind of locked up. You know, we've got um, about 600-odd movies on there right now. Um, but, you know, there's still a bunch we'd like to have that we can't get. I mean, we, we, we talk to the filmmakers, we talk to distributors, and, you know, and they say, oh, there's a bit of a problem with that. We don't quite have the rights in there now anymore. Or um, somebody died and they didn't leave a provision in their will for it to be, you know, administered by somebody. Stuff disappears, unfortunately. Fortunately, the really, um, the really popular stuff um, in the exploitation side um, was taken care of by a couple of major distributors, people like Roadshow and Madman. But um, there's a whole bunch of stuff we'd love to get, but we just we keep trying. <laughs> we keep trying. We keep. We keep knocking on doors. We keep writing to people. We keep trying to unlock lock stuff that where we can. Right. I got a question for you, Ron. Um, yeah. So with uh, Ozflix, is this a streaming service that uh, is only available in uh, in Australia, or is this kind of a worldwide uh, oh, streaming okay. service? Sure. It's a global service, uh, Marcus. It's a global service. 
the thing the thing is um, we get films from many different sources uh, including the major distributors um, we get them from the major major distributors and we also get them from independent filmmakers and so the films that we get from the major distributors they often have done some kind of a deal in a foreign territory so they've already sold the rights for North America or they've sold the rights for Europe and we can't um, step across that because the deals are done and the contracts are signed and they're already spoken for. But when they come from the independent filmmakers in particular, um, yes, we can share those films in other territories. So the service technically is available anywhere. If you're in North America right now, you can log on to ausflix.tv and you can see what's available, but not every one of the 600 films, maybe a half of the films are available. So there's a bunch, but not everything. And, um, you know, that's true all over the world, like everybody in, uh, you know, every country in, in, in England, in Europe, in, in Asia, in Africa, you know, you could access the stuff that we're not restricted uh, from showing, basically. Okay. Oh, if awesome. I was to go on your site and uh, let's say I saw the man from Hong Kong and loved it and I saw Roger Ward in it, would I yep. be able to um, find a big list of, say, the rest, like Stone and um, and Turkey Shoot and Mad Max, it, would they all come up so I know that yes, uh, it's just the one actor and I can follow all of their yes. stuff? Yes, all the all the search the search on the channel allows you to search by any term, the title of a movie, the director of the movie, the actors in the movie, um, even in some cases, um, you know, other crew members, like, you know, the different films that, uh, different DOPs have shot and whatever, because we try to put all those credits in the what's called the metadata. The metadata is, you know, where you store those lists of, uh, of cast and crew and other particulars. Um, so, yes, we, 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 we can, you can. I mean, if you go to the, ch the channel now and you type in, um, you know, George Miller or, uh, you know, whatever, um, yes, that, that, that you'll get a list of all the films George Miller's been involved with. Absolutely. Very cool. Or Roger Ward. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's all possible. That's all possible. We Very do cool. Get, Very cool. Unfortunately, we do get some people writing to us from time to time saying, oh, I see you have this film, but I can't get it in my country. And, and, and I just have to politely write back and say, I'm sorry, that's out of our hands. That's that's the, the, the distributors are in charge of that. So... Um, uh, I'd like to, it, it would be great if we could liberate more stuff, but, you know, we can't do that um, and break laws. Uh, we can only do it with the agreement of the of the owners of the copyright. Um, I should know the answer to this, and I really don't, and so I've just got to throw it out there. But a friend of mine asked me about the Devil's Playground. Uh, seems yeah. uh, one of the overseas distributors picked up on it recently. Um an American one or Canadian. And so I only recall seeing it on the TV. And I think the same fella did the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. Fred now, Skeps yep. yep. Yeah. 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 You know Fred, don't you, Ron? I know him very well. I'd call Fred a friend of mine, and he's also a professional colleague in the sense that I um, I used to, when Fred, before Fred got into movies, um, Fred used to direct TV commercials. He had a small uh, production studio uh, in Melbourne uh, in the suburb of Fitzroy called The Film House. And um, uh, a lot of um, Fred's 
uh, crew that he trained and worked with um, on on that sort of journey, making TV commercials and documentaries. He subsequently took all those people with him when he started making feature films. And um, yes, the the Devil's Playground and the Chanter Jimmy Blacksmith were two feature films that he produced. Uh, Fred, of course, went on to have a Hollywood career. Um, he made a bunch of films in Hollywood and um, and very good films in Hollywood too, with some very big name, uh, very big name stars. Um, you know, he did. Um, uh, well, you know, just just search, you know, just Google Fred Skepsi, uh, S-C-H-E-P-I-S-I, and you'll find uh, all the all the films that he's made in Hollywood. He's um, he's had a career, and uh, obviously another a director that we should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, the adventures of Barry McKenzie is also a friend of mine. That's Bruce Beresford, but uh, Bruce. Oh, yeah, Bruce. I saw he did King David, um, well, he, and the. The fight scene in King David, this is before you started seeing a lot of the choreographed fight scenes in a lot of the Hollywood movies. And I thought, was he one of the first to ever understand battlefield choreography? Uh, Bruce is actually both a film a filmmaker and an opera director. Um, he's, he's directed a lot of, um, you know, battle scenes on stages as, as well in opera. But he, he's a... Um, Another Australian filmmaker who went on to have a, a, a very successful Hollywood career and um, including the Oscar-nominated picture Driving Miss Daisy. When you talk to Bruce about um, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, I'll just tell you this because, as I told you, my dad distributed it in, in Australia and, uh, and, and I told you about Philip Adams, um, the producer, but I didn't mention Bruce. Bruce doesn't like to talk about The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Uh, when I say doesn't like to talk about it, he'll talk about it privately, you know, to me or, you know, to you privately. But when he's interviewed in the media, he he kind of disowns it. <laughs> he feels that it was a kind of an anomaly in his career and he much prefers to talk about the serious films that he made mm. after that rather than, um, rather than um, you know, that kind of off-ball, you know, off-beat. Uh, low-budget, uh, exploitation sort of comedy. But um, I still love The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. I still think it's hilarious. I still think um, Barry Humphreys was, is a genius comic writer and, and, and uh, you know, apart from his, his acting roles that he does and, and the stage shows that he's had a huge career with here and in the UK, I think, um, you know, Humphreys is a genius writer, satirist. And so, yeah, I don't know why Beresford is so embarrassed about um, the Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Um, I don't think he should be, and I've told him that a few times. But um, uh, he likes to kind of um, think like I think he likes to think of himself um, more in terms of his later career and his um, and his uh, his <laughs> serious films, his Oscar-nominated films, and so forth. Maybe you can't see the wit in what uh, Barry Humphreys wrote. It's very oh, cutting think- edge. For its time, I mean, you can look at it nowadays and you go, hang on, um, a lot of people didn't see things that he was seeing at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they might think that this is promoting Okoyobo culture. Mm. It's actually not. It's shining a light back on us in a funny way to say, hang on, you've got a lot of homophobia in Australia. You've got mm. a lot of these problems. You've got a lot of those problems. Rather pointing the finger and saying, "Hey, you're all a bunch of pricks because you like that," which we yeah. weren't all like that. 
Uh, what he's doing is he's highlighting it so you can see it, you can laugh at it, you don't feel that the finger's pointing at you that you're guilty, and then you can, in your own time, now that you know it, start changing your behaviour. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was definitely satirical. What What's interesting is I can remember my father coming back after about the first week of Barry McKenzie being in the cinemas and saying, this film satirises, um, you know, that Australian kind of, uh, you know, yobbo mentality. But at the same time, the people coming into the cinema to watch it are those people. They they come in and they and they and they uh, bring you know six packs of beer and they sit there and get drunk and watch and laugh at the and laugh at themselves, and they love it and they just think it's hilarious and they think that they're kind of being glorified on that in that story, when in fact I think Humphreys was kind of uh, you know sending them up, taking the piss, uh, you know satirizing them. But it's it's interesting. He um, <laughs> I think. I think Bruce knew that. I think he just got a lot of, you know, people afterwards kind of gave him a bit of a, a, a hard time about it. And he went on to do a lot of, you know, legitimate Australian sort of, you know, uh, films like Don's Party and Getting a Wisdom and, you know, Money Movers, Bluefin, Breaker Morant, you know, The Club, all that stuff, Puberty Blues, and, and, and kind of um, thought that that was more kind of where he should be rather than in that kind of low-budget low comedy stuff. But, yeah, whatever, whatever. I, I, well, isn't I, I, Don's Party like a crossover because it's still a very uh, Okayobo film? That's the one with Graham Kennedy in it, isn't it? Yes, Graham Kennedy's in there amongst amongst many others, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it again, look, Don's Party, all the David Williamson plays that were successful in in um, back in the day... Um, they got turned into, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of them. Obviously, the club was another one, and and um, Don's party, and there was there was a, many. But um, those David Williamson's plays again, I'd say that the strength of those was, you know, that they were really well written. They really reflected the Australian psyche. These were films that were adapted by Bruce and other directors from from successful stage plays. They weren't written as film scripts, so that's a different kind of a. Um, you know, that's a different thing. If you write a film script, I think um, you can, you're not, if you adapt, the, I guess it's the other way around is what, it, what I'm probably trying to say is if you adapt the stage play, um, you're limited because the stage play is already set. It's scripted. It's in everybody's minds as a stage play. And your job's just to kind of adapt it for the screen. Um, whereas if you write a film script, you can write it as cinematically as you like. Um, so that's a different kind of a film. But, you know, eventually Bruce obviously went on to do a whole bunch of other films in Hollywood in particular, as I said, and, um, and some, very, some excellent films and very um, serious films. So um, he's, 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 had, um, he's had a very long career. And, uh, you know, I guess the one of his that's on Ausflix right now that I commend people to see that not many people have seen is Mao's Last Dancer. Did, Roger, have you seen, uh, David, have you seen Mao's Last Dancer? No. Uh, no. Uh, yes. No, no, Hang no. on. Isn't this about um, a, a man who uh, loved dancing? He brought out the book and uh, the film at the same oh, time. Oh, yeah, about yeah. Ten years yeah, ago. I, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the fellow was... came out to Australia and was doing Chinese talks. Guy, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Li Chin or something, and he's actually now, believe it or not, he's the artistic director of the Queensland Ballet. That gentleman, but he. 
he was um, he was in a ballet, a Chinese ballet company that um, that Mao um, had uh, started or, or patronised in some way in China. But he, he yes, he escaped from China and he came to Australia and he's still here. And um, Beresford made the film, the biographical kind of based film in um, 2009. But you know that's that's a film with all the production values. Um, all the quality, all the artistry that you could imagine in a movie. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's a beautifully staged film yeah. with a lot of dance sequences, and there's a lot of story, and there's a lot of, and there's some adventure, obviously, and and so on. But um, you know, I think it's a film that people probably should try to catch because you know, if <laughs> if you haven't seen um, too many of Bruce's films, that's a good one, and and it's on Ausflix. So I'm gonna, I'm pushing it. Too, because not only do I like it, but I've actually managed to get it for Ausflix, which I'm proud oh, of. Nice. Um, so I I don't want to like steer the, uh, the topic too much, but uh, one thing <laughs> that one thing that I I do want to mention is uh, you know maybe maybe this is a a view coming from like a different country, but sometimes when I when I I'll say when I watch. Uh, Australian movies or uh, movies that are de depicting Australia as like a dangerous place. You know, like there's, you know, dangerous animals like wild boars, uh, alligators, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. And uh, is that really the case uh, in Australia? Like, is there really like, you know, is it a, a really dangerous place to be at? Can be. Um, can be. Sydney is at the moment. Sydney's got uh, the floods, and the floods have started uh, pushing all of the spiders and snakes out because they don't want to be drowned. So there are people who are worried about the flood, and and there's photographs and footage everywhere. They've got like uh, 200,000 spiders all over their house. Mm. Um, mm. They're supposed to vacate their houses anyway and probably wouldn't have listened, so that's a good way of getting you to get out of the flood areas. But right now, I can't imagine what I'm seeing in the footage from Sydney. Ah, I, but where I live in Melbourne, jeez, I've got a can of fly spray next to me just in case there's one little bug come into the place. <laughs> um, look, Marcus, the truth of it is that we have a lot, an, a lot of uh, poisonous snakes and spiders, and uh, we have a lot of sharks. We do have, uh, we don't have alligators, but we have crocodiles, particularly in the northern part of Australia, and um, and they're huge, and they and they they do sometimes eat people. But you know, I mean, I don't know. I look around the world, and you know, I see that people have, um, you know, poisonous octopuses and uh, other kinds of, you know, grizzly bears. We don't have any grizzly bears. You know, this is North America's got great big bears that'll run out of the forest and you know rip your head off. We don't have that. So we have some stuff, but, you know, we, we fortunately don't have some other stuff, I guess. I, I don't know. I think America, I think America, North America, I think America and Canada, is, there's a lot of dangerous stuff there, in my opinion. I, I mean, cougars and mountain lions. You know, we don't have cougars and mountain lions. We don't have grizzly bears. Next week, I've got um, a film that I'm finishing off called Badass Bunyip. And uh, a bunyip is like... Uh, mythological it's like a, an aquatic creature that is virtually unstoppable and uh the whole storyline with this is like i'm filming it at albert park which has basically got some bushland there but it's um surrounded 
by skyscrapers on one side, a football ground on another, and uh, on another side is the most complex uh, tram conjunction. It's like three levels that you've ever seen. So it's almost like I've got the um, society slowly encroaching on what was Aboriginal uh, traditional land over 200 years, but the bunyip is still there. So our bunyip is basically unstoppable and uh, the whole bit, but I can't tell you if a bunyip ever really existed, except that they are in the papers, um, you know, from like 100 years ago where people believed that if somebody died, a bunyip might have taken them. So we've got mythological creatures. But as Ron said, I don't know that we've got that many... Um, we don't have lions and tigers, and you know, here. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I think you guys have got, you guys have got like, um, you know, yowies and Bigfoots and, you know, I mean, we, we've got, yeah. we got, we got mythological creatures too. But the thing is, really, at the end of the day, um, the, 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 probably one of the scariest films that you'll ever see that was made in Australia was made by a, um, by, it was, well, it was an English actor and a Canadian director and, you know, it was a film called Wake in Fright. And Wake in Fright is actually um, about a guy who goes to an outback town right out in the middle of nowhere and um, as a school teacher, as a substitute school teacher, and um, he finds uh, he's an Englishman actually and he's come out to Australia and he's been sent to a regional remote area to, to be a temporary school teacher. And he gets um, sort of drawn in by the local people and their very macho culture. Um, and he gets taken on, uh, it gets taken out to sort of drinking orgies. And uh, one night he goes on a kangaroo hunt. And uh, these guys have got high powered rifles. And, um, you know, they go out shooting kangaroos in the headlights of their trucks at night. So um, it's a kind of really scary thing. <laughs> It's scary, um, not because the animals are scary, it's scary because of the inhumane way that the humans treat each other and the way they treat the uh, the animals. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I <laughs> Australia does have some scary stuff, but, you know, Australians are probably just as scary <laughs> as the animals. That's almost like the start of walkabout. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if it's giving anything away, but it starts because the father's going to do um, uh, suicide but take the kids with him, but the kids get away and are stuck in the outback. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think that's uh, David Gulpalil's first film, is it? Yeah. Or one of them. Yeah. I think it was pretty much one of his early films, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think Storm Boy was his first. Yeah, probably was. Oh, maybe. Yeah. 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 Mm. Could be. But Storm Boy could have been before. Walkabout gave me nightmares. Actually, Walkabout's one of those ones where they brought in an actress um, from, I think it was America or England, because... Oscar, England. She's English, England. yeah. because yeah, I always thought we've got to have a foreign actor to make um, the film great. And they did that uh, to you, uh, Roger, in um, Turkey Shoot. They brought in um, an American actor because I thought, oh, you've got to have um, an overseas actor yeah. as the lead actor in an Aussie film, or it just doesn't look like it's a, a big film. Well, nowadays, if you have a look at Aussies in Hollywood, is there such a yeah, thing no. as a Hollywood movie without an Aussie actor? No, there isn't one. They yeah. don't make them anymore. You can't make a film in Hollywood. It's a requirement. You've got to, you know, yeah. have an Australian actor in it, or you can't get it funded these days. That's how it goes, I think. 
But yeah, um, still, well, the ones we made in the 70s and 80s were 20 years too early. You know, we, the Australians weren't recognised. It took 20 years for us to be recognised as such. Yeah. But we'll talking about that, characters. you were saying earlier, Marcus, about the uh, animals and so on. During Turkey Shoot, I did a scene where I had to cross a river, uh, walk across. It was about chest neck high. And they actually put explosives in the water before I did it to get rid of the crocodiles. And they also <laughs> had a... <laughs> they told me they had a... Uh, an underwater man with a gun under the water, but the water was so dark that I couldn't see him. But I, I went through that river knowing that they'd just blown it up to get rid of the crocodiles and thinking, my God, I hope to God they did get rid of them. But uh, <laughs> so that was the sort of thing that was going on, you know. So I felt that you were the, the, the standout actor of Turkey Shoot. I mean, there are a lot of great actors in it, but I thought that you were, Roger. And here they brought in this American guy that um, when I read about it later, they said he really wasn't so interested in the film and he felt that uh, it, he was just being sent off there because his career was on the skids or something. Yeah. The, he was a nice guy, but the girl was also from America as well. Um, mm -hmm. I forget it. Olivia uh, Hussey. Yeah, Olivia. She actually didn't want to be there. She didn't want to be anywhere, not necessarily <laughs> Australia. She just didn't want to be alive. So that's the uh, way she was, uh, not because of the film, but because of her personal life. And she carried that through to the film. Like, she was very depressed in the film. You can see her facial expressions are pretty mournful. But the boy, as you say, he wasn't a brilliant actor, but he's a nice guy and one of the nicest American actors I've met. In those days, the Americans would come out here and they thought they knew everything and... Uh, and consequently, they were pretty arrogant. But now they come out here with a meeker attitude. But in the 70s and 80s, they really came out here with a top dog attitude, which I wouldn't tolerate. Mm. But uh, thankfully, that's dropped now that we're starting to be powerful ourselves, you know. So it's much better now. I read that with the man from Hong Kong, the uh, martial artist that was brought in from, I think it was Hong Kong or China, had that mm -hmm. attitude and beat the yeah, crap Jimmy. out of the director. Jimmy Wang Yu, yeah. Jimmy Wang Yu, he was a director in Hong Kong and he didn't like what Trenchard was doing and tried to take over. But uh, his attitude was pretty, very bad toward uh, Trenchard Smith. He was okay with me and the rest of us, but he just didn't like Brian, didn't, didn't want what Brian was doing. But they're now friends now. They've understood each other now. They're quite good friends. But at that period, it was a very tough time for Brian. Uh, but uh, he, he was prepared yeah. to let Jimmy do what he wanted to do. And he actually said to me, I'll win my battle at the box office, which he had <laughs> done. <Yeah. laughs> well, Roger, you and Ron basically were the windbreakers, um, changing the attitude overseas. Because I actually have an easier time of it when um, when I chat to guys like uh, Marcus and I say I'm an Aussie. They don't think um, that I'm naturally an idiot anymore, and they go, "Actually, I'm in quite interested in Australia." So I find yeah. that I don't have too much of a hard time with getting my films shown on on small platforms because I'm only small time. I'm not big time like you guys, but I can get onto the small platforms and in um, you know onto community TV and onto um, small cinemas in the USA because they've got a very positive um, attitude towards Australia and the USA. 
And yeah, you guys yeah. did the hard work so that I can do that. Yeah. Well, even in 75, 76, I remember we always did two versions. We always did the American version and an Australian version. So we'd do the Australian version and then we'd have to drop into American actors, uh, accents and do another take in an American accent just to sell in America. So we did cater to the Americans doing that by, you know, all of us using American accents. I, I remember... I Sorry, go ahead, Rog. Go ahead. I just say I remember one of the one of the crew members was an American, and he said to me, "Ah, yeah, from the uh, we we from the mid coast." Eh? And he thought I was a real American, which was good. I was quite proud of that. But after twenty years or so doing like forgetting about that, we didn't have to do it for twenty odd years. My American accents dropped, but in those days we we could drop into an American accent just like that. We had to because you know we had to sell in America. I was I was walking down the street in New York one day when I was visiting there and there was a video store with a dollar bin outside, uh, you know, one of these remnants dollar bins, you know, uh, thing. And there was a copy of Mad Max, a DVD in the dollar bin. And I picked it up and I thought, wow, this is this is a trip. And I turned it over and it was a double sided DVD. One side of the DVD had the original Australian soundtrack with all the original Australian accents. And the reverse side of the exact same DVD, the physical same disc, had the exact same picture but with all American accents dubbed in. Rog, you'll remember that, that the first release of Mad Max in the USA had a dubbed version with all the voices dubbed in by American actors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in actual fact, they weren't American actors. I found out. Uh, I thought they were American actors. But I, oh. just before I did Mad Max, I went to a private party in Bondi and met a young guy about 19 years old who was a friend of the family I was with. And he said, I want to be an actor and all that sort of thing. And I said, oh, well, I'm about to start a film called Mad Max. Oh, yeah, really? So he went off to England to become an actor. And it was about two years later, three years later, he got a call and said, look, can you come down to um, the studio? Uh, we want to dub some voices into American accents. And he went down there and it was Mad Max. Now, he was an English guy who had lived in, Amer in Australia and who happened to know me, and he dubbed my voice plus a few others. And my I didn't goodness. know this for 40-odd wow. years. And I used to bitch my on about goodness. it. I used to bitch on about it, and he was too embarrassed to ever tell me because he knew that I hated the voice. And he, about two years ago, he admitted to me that it was actually him. He's now <laughs> six, he's 60 years old now, and he's a, a full you know English actor now with a cravat and the beard and the the pipe and all that so he's become a real english actor but in those days he just went down to the studio and put on an american voice for me and a couple of others and everybody thinks it's some real americans and it wasn't it was a, a pommy who lived in australia who threw a voice on like we could have all done you know we could have uh, all done yeah that. wow that's a that's a fantastic story i did not know that yeah. that's awesome yeah yeah wow um anyway. I, I do want to, to mention, uh, or at least ask about uh, Mad Max. Uh, how <laughs> uh, how did you like uh, bossing around Mel Gibson throughout that movie? How did I like, uh, well, you know, people say to me, wow, you work with Mel Gibson. You know, give me a break. The kid was 21 years old and yeah. uh, just came out of drama school, for God's sake. You know, he's just a kid. And to me, Mad Max was just another film. And Mel Gibson was a, a young actor. But I must say that uh, I, I, uh, 
I did admire his balls uh, because during a period where we were going to have a fight or some choreography I was organising, and I said to Gibson, you know, we'll do this. And Gibson said to me, I don't want to do that. I said, I beg your pardon? I don't want to do that, he said. I said to myself, you know, if I was 21 and I had an older actor who'd been around for 20 years telling me what to do, I would have said, yeah, sure, you know, let's do it. But Gibson refused to do certain things that I suggested. And I didn't like the guy. I thought, you know, arrogant little bastard. But it wasn't until we did that scene on the stairwell where I say, you and me, Max, we're going to give them back their heroes. Well, that was a pretty tough old scene to do. We were working all day on that and very claustrophobic and everybody was in a bad mood. And finally, it was about the last take and I came down the stairwell and I grabbed Gib Gibson on the face and said, you know, go, you know, go catch flies or whatever, do whatever. But as I came down, I went stomp and I stood on his foot really heavily. <laughs> and my immediate thought was, oh, my God, this bastard's going to say, oh, my God, you strut on my foot. You know, like some actors do. And I thought, if he does that, I'll, I'll actually knock him out. I, you know, so tight, uptight. And the guy didn't <laughs> flinch. Even though I stomped full body weight on his toe, he didn't flinch. And you look at the screen, you won't even see his eyes move. And I said to myself at that moment, this guy can act. And that was what turned me in favour of Gibson. Before that, I didn't like the kid. I thought he was an arrogant little prick. But now I know he can act and he's a bloody good actor. And, you know, we're still friends. So um, that was just a little scene that made me know that he could act. You got to admit, I sound good there for a minute. Yeah. Five feet. Hey! Hey, come on! You want me to fade? I'll tell you what I'll do. Take off a few weeks, huh? Grow yourself a beard. Draw flies. Just think about it for a while. You still feel the same way when you come back? Well, it's okay by me. Come on. I'm not going to change my mind. Get out of here before I decide to come with you, huh? Back, Rock Tansky. Yo, Max. And you know it. That was it. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's an incredible movie, and it's you know spawned sequels, and then you know, you know, there's the newer version with Fury Road. Uh, do uh. You know, I haven't really read much about it. I, I heard there was possibly rumors that uh, another one was going to get made. Um, yeah, they've done four, as you know. They're talking about doing five. Yeah, they are. Uh, Hugh, um, Hugh Keysburn, who was in four, Hugh played, um, uh, I forget, he was in one of the bikers in uh, Mad Max, and uh, he died recently. Uh, he was in Mad Max 4, yeah. playing a Morton Joe. But they've got enough footage of Hugh to use in the next one posthumously. So they may, they are talking about doing another one, a fifth one. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm. Uh, have, have they uh, mentioned anything to you, Roger, about, you know, no. possibly a no, cameo? George or... and I, uh, George wanted me in Mad Max 2 uh, to play Humongous, but uh, we had a bit of an altercation again. Uh, at that time, George had 
improved in status. Like in the Mad Max 1, he came to my home, knocked on the door very timidly and asked me, would I mind having a look at the script and, you know, go into his film? But with Mad Max 2, he actually rang my agent and said, would Roger come and audition for Mad Max 2? So I what? Got, yeah, what? I got on my house, I got on my high horse and stormed into his office and before George could get up from his massive desk, I said, George, before we do any auditions, we'll talk money. I want 50 grand. Oh, George leapt up from his table like, like a movie, you know, uh, producer and said, get out of my office. Get out. <laughs> so George had changed from this meek little guy from Mad Max 1 to this, this mad uh, producer. But uh, I wasn't, I was very angry that he asked me to audition, yeah. So we didn't actually talk for 10 years after that. But uh, that, it was to play humongous, yeah. That was, that. that's what happens when you make a $340,000 film that takes $104 million at the box office, unfortunately. You know, you, um, your head expands to uh, yeah. to fill the available yeah. space, doesn't it? It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's os osmosis, you know. Um, yeah. I just turned $340,000 into $104 million and everybody's telling me I'm a genius. So yeah. Yeah. that's what happened. Well, yeah. But, but prior to that, you know, leading up to Mad Max 2, we were friends, you know. We, we would we'd be in Melbourne and I was with him when he made yeah. his first million dollars. Uh, yeah. After after Mad Max 1, we, we were continually friends. And as I say, yeah. he, I was with him when he made the first million and I was more excited than he was. But yeah. and as the as the weeks went by, and then he just said, "Oh, you tell Roger to come in and audition." Well, it really, it upset me, and I got angry, and I shouldn't have. But anyway, we're friends again now. But ten years it took us to get back to friends again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Roger is a wealth of knowledge on all of the whole era. I was thinking for a minute. Boy, the amount of talk on Mad Max, maybe I shouldn't have been on it and I should have asked John Hipwell if he'd take my spot. John oh, was yeah. on Mad Max, wasn't he? Yeah. John was, John, yeah. was, John was, John was a, a, key, a key mover and shaker in getting a whole lot of things done. And I've talked to, I've talked to Hips a few times about, about the shoot um, and, um, you know, he would tell me about how he was simultaneously, um, you know, covering three roles, including directing traffic, you know, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah wrangling cars you know on, a, on an open freeway when i mean it was a really um it was a really um small crew and a really difficult shoot and um and and hips was yeah he was he was great he was terrific but you're right he's got a lot of stories he's got a lot of good stories too it might do if um if you've got sufficient interest um just to do um one purely on mad max uh, people did you know that there are board games based on mad max Starting uh -huh. with, I think it was Car Wars, then Dark Future, and the latest is Gaslands. Those are people that just play tabletop um, games with uh, matchbox cars that they um, that they paint up and they turn into these monster mobiles. Mm -hmm. Then there's actually weekends in the United States where they actually are dedicated to Mad Max and post-apocalyptic cars. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a cult. It's a cult. It's turned into a regular cult. It's not yeah. QAnon. It's not QAnon, fortunately, but it's a cult. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the sheer scale of all of the things that it's influenced and just hearing today 
that um, well, Ron, that you're do you're doing the sound next to a brothel uh, with plywood <laughs> with the guys editing on the other side and hearing yeah. the inside stories from Roger. Um, I, I can put you in contact with, um, with with John, and you could do one purely on that if you want for a future one. Oh, uh, yeah, that would be amazing for sure. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind that. being on it, but I got nothing to contribute. <laughs> well, I, I saw it at the movies. All I can say is I'm one of a, a, a billion people that uh, was at the movies and loved seeing it. <laughs> you could, you could, you could do the fan perspective. You know, the uh, you could, you could talk about all your favourite scenes and ask questions about how it was done. I can show you my painted cars for playing Gaslands. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I, I know Ron wants to take off here. Uh, Same here. Yeah, is that okay? Dave. Okay. Yeah, we'll um, call it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, with with Ron and uh, and David, uh, is is there anything that you guys want to uh, to let the listeners know, like you know, what to check out uh, from from your guys' side of uh, of your projects and and whatnot. I, I don't I think need to promote any of my projects because I've got stuff coming out all of the time and I can mention to you um, stuff that comes out. And, and the chances are that um, the, the next two features I've got that will come out will probably just go on to Ausflix. So it's really... Um, yeah, yeah. Ausflix is... Ausflix, it's just O-Z-F-L-I-X dot TV. Anybody can go there. It's free to join. It's it's uh, There's a bunch of free content on there as well as some pay-per-view stuff. The stuff that we get from the major distributors obviously is a pay-per-view system, so it's it's a few bucks. It's a couple of dollars, actually, to watch a film on Ausflix. Um, and, you know, I'd encourage people to just check it out. Just check it out and see if they find stuff they like. If they're particularly interested, obviously, because your uh, listeners are particularly interested in, in the horror genre and whatnot, um, you know, we've got probably a good 50 pictures at least on there that they probably never heard of that they might wade into and have some fun with. Nice. Awesome. You know, I've got, to, if you want, I'll, I'll plug that. I don't, I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? Where are you? Oh, the, the set. It's a book. No, you can't okay. see it, can you? No. A book? Oh, your book? Oh, the set, yeah. The set. Yeah, you can't see that, no. No, it's called The Set, and it's uh, a book I wrote and it's made into a film, and that's available. But it's through um, Amazon. You can get it through the through Amazon. The set. Amazon. Okay, cool. The Excellent. Yeah. yeah. We should all we should all get Roger's book. That would be great. I'll get. <laughs> I'm going to get it. Yeah. I'm going to get your book. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make a note right now, Roger, to get your book. Good, good, good. Yeah, the set. And it was made into a film in 1970. So, so they okay. did buy the film rights. They bought the film rights long before I sold the book. They bought the film rights from me. But uh, it's available through the Amazon, yeah. Very well, thank cool. you, Marcus. It was lovely to talk to you. And, and Thanks, mate. Dave and Ron, lovely. Thank, good to see you, Roger, again. Thank yeah, you, Marcus, lovely. for having me. Yeah, yes, thank, thank you, Marcus. guys. Thanks, David, oh. for introducing us. Oh, thank you for coming on. The, well, it's not my show to thank you for coming on, but I didn't think you guys would accept. You'd say, oh, who's this little pisher? He's the new kid on the block that's making a few films. Um because you guys are like legendary, so thank you for for allowing me to be on the show with you. <laughs> thank, thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Marcus. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye -bye. See you, Bob. Bye bye.
Well, that was the episode, everyone. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed. Uh, there's tons and tons of information on osploitation and, uh, and film in general. Uh, I, I was blown away by uh, the fact that Ron was one of the uh, editors, sound editors for Mad Max. And, uh, you know, was doing all that next to a, a brothel. Uh, pretty pretty darn amazing really i mean it's just uh an amazing story and uh you know i i kind of want to know more about uh some of these other hidden gems that ron has been a part of in cinema because he's worked on mad max i'm sure there's some other uh films he's worked on that i'm not aware of so uh fingers crossed i could maybe you know try to get some more information on that uh and really everybody has a vast knowledge on uh, cinema in general and especially Ozploitation films uh, I, I thought this is a pretty darn cool podcast and I've learned a lot today uh, you know I hope you guys maybe have learned a few things along the way and uh, that's not going to be all the Ozploitation conversation will continue on uh, an upcoming podcast with Brian Trenchard-Smith, who has directed several exploitation films, including Turkey Shoot, and, uh, you know, he's also the director of Leprechaun 3, 4, Night of the Demons 2, uh, Dead End Drive-In, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. He's going to be an awesome person to talk about exploitation and get some info on exploitation films, and including his book that, uh, that he'll be promoting on the show. And I'll also be having uh, Andy McPhee, who has been in several television series, uh, including Sons of Anarchy, Wilfred, and uh, a movie you might be familiar with called Wolf Creek, and, and many, many more. He's going to be on the show the same episode, so this is going to be uh, an Australian power-packed episode, and also David will be coming back on the show to join in on the conversation I cannot wait for this podcast. It's going to be amazing. So, uh, yeah, I hope you all have enjoyed this, and I hope you continue uh, to uh, to learn more about exploitation with me on uh, on our journey. So, uh, I will sign off the podcast with saying you can follow me on social media at Facebook and Instagram at Root Horror Podcast. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Root Horror Pod, or you can email me at rootehorror at gmail.com. Or if you forgot everything that I've said, you can just go to linktree.com forward slash Podcast, and that gives you the links to everything. All, all of uh, everything that I'm connected with, including my new website that I am currently working on but it is up and running and you can check out what's on there so far uh just you know bigger bigger things are yet to come and uh i'm I'm excited to uh unveil some of the cool shit that i got going on and uh thank you all so much for listening and uh stay tuned for the next one the root horror podcast would like to thank Pit Lord and Evil Dead Beats for providing music to the show.